Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 217 with Scott Belsky of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder family? Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan. I'm the CEO of Founder Magazine and also the host of this podcast. And I'm coming to you live from hometown Melbourne, Australia. Hope you're having a great day wherever you are around the world. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. If you are new to the podcast, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation and really just try and unpack and distill uh, you know, their experiences and lessons learned on what it takes to build and grow a successful business. So you can do that too. So let's talk about today's guest. Uh, his name is Scott Balski, and uh, he's the f- co-founder of a company called Behance, and uh, incredible product. Uh, we use actually Behance for founder to find exceptional design talent, and uh, you know if it wasn't for his product, um, Behance to find great designers, I don't think. Well, maybe maybe our stuff wouldn't look as good as it does right now. Um, so I had a lot of fun speaking with Scott. He's an advisor to like some crazy companies like Pinterest and Periscope and Uber, and um, you know he, he's an extremely successful founder. And we talk about his latest book called The Messy Middle, and we also talk about the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, and and really how can you ride those highs. But then also manage those lows because, you know, as an advisor, he's got an ins- like a, a, some like these profoundly large companies. He has a really interesting insight 
into, you know, what goes down and, you know, how ridiculously hard it is to build a really successful startup, something of true significance and worth. Um, so guys, that's it from me. I hope you enjoy these episodes. If you are, please do leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening. Share it with your friends. I know you must have other friends that are founders. All right, I'm going to take it over to Scott. That's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. So the first question that uh, I ask everyone uh, that I speak to is, uh, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? Yeah. How did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, I think like most careers, you know, it's sort of a, it's always a series of, 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 um, of accidents or inspirations. And, uh, you know, for me, I've always been obsessed with the idea of helping organize creative people and that, um, you know, that, that materialized into the idea of Behance, which actually most folks don't realize started as a paper company. And, uh, and then, uh, for, for organizing creative people. So we actually built notebooks and that kind of thing to help creatives get organized. And that evolved into a conference dedicated to organization in the creative world and not talking about ideas, but talking about how to actually make them happen, which led to a book called Making Ideas Happen, which uh, was also sort of uh, in parallel to building a platform called Behance to help creatives organize their work and uh, and get attribution and opportunity. and. And uh, and then when you when you build a, a few different sort of strands of a, of a concept, you're never really gonna you never, you never really know which one's gonna stick. Um, and in our case, uh, a few of them actually are still around today. Our conference is in its 11th year. Um, the paper products are still marketed and out there. Um, but Behance is really what we're known for, and uh, and that business was you know has been a, a decade of my labor. So um, of course Behance led to me coming into Adobe and uh, and then taking on a, a new role I have now, which is leading leading all of the product for the company. Yeah, wow. So that's really fascinating. Um, curious. So so you started like uh, what what where did like take me back? How, how when did you start? Uh, so it sounds like ninety nine U was was kind of and, and the and the physical products um, that was kind of the first kind of uh, was that your first venture or. Yeah, that's when it all started, and I think that the the it was just out of a my own kind of frustration with myself and with other creative people I knew who always had ideas and talked about them but never actually got anything done because we were always overwhelmed by our day jobs and the um, and also the the long term pursuit. You know, it was really hard to stay engaged with. You know, one of the things that I talk about a lot with startup teams is that uh, we're all sort of hardwired with a short-term reward system. We, we work for the salary. We work for the gratification of customers who are working with us or clients or our bosses or that sort of thing. And then when you commit yourself to an entrepreneurial pursuit, you're unplugging yourself from this reward system motivated only by a long-term vision, you know, something you want to accomplish uh, through a lot of work. And, and that, that works for the first few weeks, maybe. Um, but eventually realized, wow, you know, actually the long-term vision is not enough to keep me, keep me and my team engaged for years. You actually have to have short-term rewards as well. And that often comes in the form of early products you can actually get to market while you're building your real products um, or other hacks of the reward system, other ways of kind of staying engaged. And for us at Behance, it was 
you know, these some of these early things that we did, like the paper products in the conference, were actually what helped us stay engaged long enough to build the company that we ended up being known for, which was more of the technology. Um, but you asked kind of back to the early days and, you know, and, and what the impetus of those products uh, uh, was. It was really just a genuine interest in the problem. Yeah, I see. So, so did you start, you said, you said um, Behance spun off from the conference though. So were you building uh, another tech product before that or, and it sounds like you were using the paper no. products in the conference to cash flow you guys or? Yeah, well, the, the paper products in the conference were definitely our bootstrapping mechanism for five years. Um, that was very much a big part of our revenue. Um, Behance was the first technology product um, that we had or, or real, real, real service. Um, we also had a product called Action Method that some folks might remember, but it was a task management tool for creatives that was more inspired by the product, paper product line, but we ended up killing that, you know, which is another big lesson, by the way, that I'll just jump to real quick, which is the fact that you have to, if you're going to try a number of different things early on, you also have to be willing to kill a number of things early on. That's the only way you make any one thing succeed. Yeah, because focus is so key. Focus is key. And, you know, the, like, the, um, the analogy I like to use is, is like a bonsai tree where you're always kind of cutting back the branches, the old branches, um, in order, or the new branches in order to make the real branch is like bigger, you know, and you're, it's hard to cut those newest little twigs and little leaves and stuff, but that's the art of, of building a tree, you know, and, and, and actually having something uh, that actually has significance and some gravity to it. Uh, and I think it's very much the same thing in, in a business, uh, certainly in entrepreneurship, and, um, and also the same thing for writers. You know, in writing, they call it killing your darlings. The plot points or the characters that you love with, you fall in love with as a writer, but aren't necessarily central to the audience and, and will ultimately confuse people. So take me back just like just on the so I can kind of get a gauge for the timeline and our audience can get a gauge for the timeline because you look at Behance, you sold, uh, it was acquired by Adobe in 2012. So that was six years ago. So this has been a, you know, a decent period of time. So when, and you said that you didn't get to Behance until five years after starting the company. So when did you guys, did you, when did you guys start and, and how long did it take to really kind of hit product market fit with the, the Behance platform? Well, Behance, we started working on in 2005. And really over 2006, we launched the paper products. And then in 2007, we launched the network. But if you think about it, from 2005 to 2012, that was seven years, five years of bootstrapping and two years as a venture-backed company. Yeah, wow. And how come um, you guys uh, decided to raise after five years? Because that's um, that's kind of uncommon, right? I think it's actually more uncommon to wait that long. Um, but we, uh, you know, we 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 really had this desire to build a uh, a business that we could self fund. That you know, in some ways, the old fashioned way, like hand to mouth. And uh, also by doing that, we could have our optionality to build it at the pace we wanted to, and to do uh, the projects that we wanted to do, you know, in the in the order we wanted to do them. So that's the only way to kind of control your own destiny. Uh, in some cases, is to actually be in control and be funding yourself. But at some point we realized that part of the business, the technology side was growing very rapidly and, um, and we needed to resource the teams appropriately. And when I had teams come to me saying, Hey, 
you know, I don't feel like I can do the best work of my life here unless I can hire the team that I need. Um, I realized that that was time to get, get some investors so we could grow a little faster. Mm. So the space in between when you when you launched uh, Behance and then actually um, it, it went on to, to be acquired, um, you know, it's is is a decent amount of time. But uh, what what I'm curious around is you said you were working on the product um, like you know you you launched in 2005, but didn't launch it till five years later. So, like, what when you were building it, was it what you guys imagined, or were there many pivots along the way? So, well, we launched. You know, we we started the team started coming together in 2005, and the paper products came out in 2006, and the network launched in 2007. So are you asking what we did during those two years or what we did between that and, and the acquisition? What did you do between that and the acquisition? Oh, I mean, well, that was, um, you know, that was, that was building a company. So, you know, between the launch of 2007 and 2012, you know, we, um, we built a team of 35, 40 people that were dedicated exclusively to the Behance network side of our business. Um, we had to, to build many incarnations of Behance, you know, we're always, uh, improving it and adding new dimensions to it and then cutting certain dimensions to it and getting more feedback and uh, building our, our, our the business side in terms of the sales for um, the many lines of revenue we tested over the years of the hits as we built that business. So it was, uh, you know, that was the, that was the core business and comp- and product building phase of the hits before the acquisition. Mm. So, um, the reason I asked that question is I I, um, I I want to talk to you about your latest book, the uh, the messy middle, finding your way through the hardest and most crucial part of any bold venture. Um, you know, can you talk to us, kind of, or elaborate? Like, why did you decide to write this book, and um, what, what what would you like to share with our audience to kind of uh, give us a bit of a teaser and what they can expect and and, and everything you've learned because. Not only have you built an incredible platform, like I said, offline before we hit record, like we use Behance to find exceptional design talent. We're bootstrapped and we can find exceptional design talent like all around the world. A lot of like the founder side and a lot of the collateral we put out is all all due to your platform, um, which is incredible. But you've also, you know, you're also an early stage investor and active advisor to companies like exceptional companies of true worth and significance like Uber, Warby Parker, Pinterest, Periscope. So I'm just really curious, like, uh, yeah, talk to us about your, your new book. It's coming out soon. Sure. Well, you know, I obviously with, with my story, there was a real very messy middle um, where there was a lot of rebuilding and testing things and getting it wrong and then trying it again and getting it right and a very volatile journey. And what I have subsequently learned by being an investor and advisor to you know, many of the companies you mentioned and others uh, that are still very much in their messy middle is just how common that is and, um, and how much volatility there is and how much of the journey boils down to just two things how you endure the lows and how you optimize the highs and how you endure the anonymity, the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the um, that lack of that short-term reward system I mentioned earlier and how you optimize the parts of your product that get attention, the ways that you work that seem to be effective. And, uh, and I just realized that those were like, the, that was like the rhythm of making that I observed some of the best entrepreneurs and and, and, and creative leaders in the world operate around. And 
And so I started to chronicle them. And this started actually five or six years ago, writing down these insights that I would hear from whether it was in board meetings or people I observed or my own experiences. And uh, the messy middle is my attempt to package it up and share it. And so, um, so there's, there's three parts in the book. There's endurance, there's optimization, as I mentioned, and there's a small part at the end called the final mile, which is about you know, how we make sure we don't mess it all up right before we're done with something, um, which I've also seen happen a few different times. And so uh, it, it's meant to be a manual for that extraordinarily volatile journey. And, uh, I just like couldn't be more excited to get into the hands of people that are embarking on their own creative journeys and, and building things. Yeah, amazing. I, I can't wait to get a copy and, and uh, have a read. Can you give us um, some examples, what I find interesting of, of uh, you said, you know, people perhaps toward, you know, the, the end, perhaps like, you know, getting close to acquisition or something, you said of messing things up. Can you give us some examples or insights that you've chronicled there? Right. Well, I think that it's very psychological. Um, I think that there's a few things that happen towards the end of a big project or near, you know, right around the opportunity of going public or an acquisition or sharing your publishing your book or sharing your art to the world or whatever your project is. You know, when you're on that cusp of success or something or completion, uh, first of all, uh, makers aren't used to being done. And so the notion of not uh, of having a finish of some sort is very disconcerting to many people, even though you'd intuitively think it's happiness. It's actually sometimes fear, um, how your life will change, um, you know, how will people interpret your work, you know, uh, that kind of thing. I think there's also an element of self-sabotage that sometimes happens for many people who don't feel they've deserved their success. You know, there, I, I've seen people on teams, whether they've been my team or others, where they just kind of couldn't you know, internalize the fact that they deserved it. And as a result, they start doing things that in some ways sabotage their own success. There's a lot of interesting stuff that happens at the end of a journey. And, um, you know, I just felt like these are things no one ever talks about. And so I try to tackle a little of it at the end of the book. Mm. And, you know, when it comes to like a creative project or um, like, like when do you know when to ship as a creative? Because like you said, um, like does perfect exist? Well, I think um, I think you always have to be shipping. Um, you know, I've seen some teams wait too long to ship, you know, and they kind of miss their market. And I've seen, um, you know, another another kind of concept I've been a little critical of in my experience is in shipping too soon. You know, there's all this talk of the the MVP, the minimum viable product, and this notion of operating very leanly. However, whatever you start to put in market for the first time ends up becoming almost like a local maxima of what you can iterate around. And so I think that when teams ship too early and get something out there too early, sometimes they feel stuck iterating what they've shipped so quickly versus getting the real core right product before sharing it with the world. Mm. So how do you know, how do you find that balance? Well, I think that's part of the chemistry of a team and having enough empathy with your customers where you can test your product with them and start to get a, a sense for when you're offering real value. But I always like to, you know, my trick in that sort of decision is I always challenge teams to optimize for the problems that they want to have. So, for example, if you launch a product and your customers want to pay you for this additional feature or they want to, you know, they're asking you, oh, my God, this is so useful. I want to be able to store this other type of data in it, or I want to be able to do this other thing. 
you know, that's the kind of stuff you want to have as requests from your customers. And so those are things you want to optimize for having, and you should ship your product before those features are in there. So you can then have your customers request those things later. What you don't want to do is ship your product before customers even know what the heck it is and how to use it and, or why it's valuable. And so um, you want to, you want to make sure that there's some core value that gets people engaged and then, but you don't want to ship so late where, you know, you're not getting that, that, that pile of requests coming in for things that they want now that they love your product so much. Mm. And, uh, Around your your creative uh, sounds like by the heart. Um, what are your thoughts on perfection? Does it exist? Well, the pursuit of perfection certainly exists, um, even though perfection doesn't. And you know, I think that kind of drives down to you know, the principle I have as someone who crafts, builds products for a living, digital products in my case, is um, to never be satisfied. I mean, there's always something wrong with your product. It's either not good enough for power users, not good enough for new users. It's not representative enough of your goals, you know, and, and every time you get it into market, you learn how it can be better and you want to change it. And eventually it will be disrupted unless you disrupt yourself by doing something that replaces your product. So I think perpetual dissatisfaction is important, which essentially means that perfection doesn't exist. Hmm. You talk like uh, about product and you're a product guy um, you know, I think undeniably one thing that that is going to make your startup work is if you have an exceptional product that is far superior towards anything else out there in the marketplace. I think that's got to fundamentally be the goal with whatever market you're looking to disrupt or whatever product you're building. Um, what advice would you give to to our audience and founders that are kind of on their journey to just starting to build out their MVP on their journey, I guess, perhaps found product market fit? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think there's a few, a few things. You know, first of all, make sure you're being driven um, by empathy with your customers over the passion you have for the solution. That's another, that's a common mistake is that people get very motivated by what they think they need to create that their customers want versus like seeking additional empathy with the people suffering the problem. And uh, which means that just to constantly be with your customers and, um, and before you get product market fit, that's what it is all about. And we make, you know, we make mistake when we stay behind our computer screens and try to, you know, innovate within our own team, a solution that, um, you know, that may in fact not be practical. And so, I think that's part of it is to keep seeking more and more, you know, keep peeling the onion and getting to the core of the truth of, you know, what, what, is, what is really the pain point you're trying to solve. I think also a big part of successful startups is just sticking together long enough to figure it out. So few teams actually stay together long enough to iterate and try new things. And I think one of the most important things we had at Behance was our culture. It was just a team that was, that was passionate about the customer base and loved working together, you know, and we just stuck together long enough that suddenly stuff started to gel. Mm, yeah. That's really interesting. Can you tell me about that early culture and, and, and what advice you would give to, to founders that are building their, I guess, founding team around how to foster a great culture? Well, a culture is nothing but the stories that you share um, that end up, setting the tone and setting the 
kind of the chemistry of the team. And so one thing you have to do is make sure you create the stories and then you share the stories, you know, and creating the stories literally means investing time with the team together, having experiences together, chronicling what people go through, the funny things that happen, the realizations, the, the principles that emerge and where they came from. And then you retell those stories to every new member of the team. That's a big part of being the steward of a culture. Uh, another thing is recognizing that every new member of your team changes the DNA of the culture. And you kind of have to always adjust and reset with when each, each person joins. And I always try to do that. I always try to make sure every new member of our team felt as a founder of some part of the team. Because in truth, when you're starting a company, you know, everyone is doing something for the first time. And in that sense, everyone is a founder of one part of the business. And when it comes to founding teams, do you prefer, like, uh, when you're building them out, specialists or all-rounders? What, what, how do you like to approach that in the early days? I think that, I think that there are some areas. It always helps to have some generalists in the team in the early stages who can just tackle any problem um, and, and just kind of roll up their sleeves. I think there needs to be this expectation of anyone who joins the team in the early stages. However, I also think that, um, that uh, certainly when you start to found certain parts of your practice, whether it be your first back-end engineer um, or your first front-end engineer or your first data scientist, obviously the, the decisions that those people make you know, impacts the future of your company. So those are areas where you want to have someone who's a specialist. And when it comes to, to building teams, do you have uh, any rules that, that, that you'd like to share or, or any golden, you know, it's got to be this way from your experience? Well, in the new book, in The Messy Middle, I do talk a lot about optimizing a team, you know, what that really boils down to, whether it's simple things like the things you don't get cheap on, <laughs> like things like, uh, you know, space and computer screens and stuff like that for your team that are essential, um, to practices for exchanging feedback, and for um, making sure that um, the team is committed to not only doing the work, but optimizing how they work. And also about hiring, you know, and favoring initiative, people who take initiative in things that, and having a history of doing so versus experience. You know, I think you find in the early stages that those who are those initiators, the ones who are just, whatever it is that they're tasked on, they'll just go above and beyond typically overperform, you know, versus those who just have a deep expertise. But there's a lot of practices I think you have to consider as you build a dream team. And it depends, though. I mean, every company is different. Every culture is different. I try not to prescribe any sort of rule, um, but rather prompt founders and leaders with the right insights so they can kind of craft their own playbook. Mm. And, uh, you know, at Behance, uh, how, did you, how did you encourage and, uh, I guess, kind of ensure – that, that your team uh, did their best work? How'd you facilitate and foster that? We had a liberal culture for feedback exchange. We would always do debriefs after every major project or launch. And, um, and that was an, a really important, it was a really important way for us to just reflect and appreciate those who contributed to the success. And then also just critique ourselves. You know, what could have been better? Almost always there was a communication issue where one team would say to another team, listen, like, I don't feel like you gave me enough heads up on that or 
feel like we had enough time for this or we didn't plan appropriately. And that's just building the muscle memory in our team of how we can operate better. And I think it's a really best, big best practice to do that. Mm. Um, I want to switch gears just coming back to uh, you talked about, um, you know, even with your your journey as a, as a founder where you started um, with the conference and, and the physical products, but you ended up cutting cutting that to focus on the network um, and you, you referred to a bonsai tree. I'm curious, how do you know when to give up? How, how do you know what to drop? How do you know what to focus on? Like how, how do you how, how do you work that out? Because I think that is often a difficult thing to wrestle with as a founder because you talk about grit, but then at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, just people want to do it all. Uh, you know, it's shiny object syndrome, so many things going on. We've talked about team building. We've talked about culture. We've talked about product. We've talked about a little bit finance, you know, VC versus bootstrapping. Like, it's just so much going on. It's a battlefield. Like, yeah, how, how do you know when, when to give up, when to keep going, how to cut? Yeah, well, I think the um, there's two principles that I think are helpful. I think one is whenever you add a new feature, consider which one you might take out. And it sounds a little crazy, but if you are thinking about a new aspect of your product or service and you're comparing it to another one that you already have live and you prefer the new one over the old one that's already live, you should always ask the question, should we just kill the one that's live And, and as, as we add this new thing? I mean, this is how you keep simplicity in a product. And it also can be a forcing function for a team to say, hey, you know, that thing that we launched you know, for us, one of them was groups. And you know, we had these groups, this groups product in Behance where people could create groups and have their own exchanges. And no one, you know, it was like used by 15% of the network. And we spent a lot of time always, always catering to it. And it also, I think, distracted customers from what was really central in Behance. It was about building your project, building your portfolio and keeping it updated. Um, and so one thing you can do is sort of like one feature in, one feature out, or at least have a practice where you consider doing it. And I think the other thing is, if you're doing something and you don't love it, you, if you could go back, you wouldn't start the business to begin with, then stop. And I always tell teams, like, you're not stuck. Um, it doesn't matter if you raise capital or whatever. If you don't believe in the premise, if you're not, yes, it will always get hard and you'll always lose hope at times. But if you look at that end goal, and if you no longer believe that that is the right solution, then you should just start something new. You should give up. You should give up. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Uh, we have to work towards wrapping up, but um, I think uh, I think our audience would love to know just around your your, your investor and, and advisor side as a founder. Um, how, how did you come to be involved in, and then also picking like such uh, you know amazing startups like that, that that you're involved in, like Airbnb, Pinterest, Uber? Like, can you talk to us about that? Sure. I mean, I wish I was an investor at Airbnb. I'm not, um, to be clear. You know, for, for the others you mentioned, I am. And um, these are all um, other, other founders that were product-centric. And in the early days when they were trying to get a small group of seed investors who could also be value-add in other ways by helping, in my case, through product, um, I, I decided to, to invest as a supporter, you know, as an investor as well. And, uh, you know, that's always in my approach as a seed investor is to find 
teams um, that I believe in, uh, products that I really resonate with and can stay up late at night thinking about. And, um, you know, I call it the zen of a product. If, you can, like, if I can really zero into, like, what the zen of the product is, what it is truly, what is its purpose in the world, you know, then I, I, can, then I feel like I can add some value to them. And, uh, and if they're raising a, a seed round, I'll participate. That's always been my, um, you know, a lot of other criteria as well, of course. But that's that's sort of my, my, uh, my fall into, uh, you know, the, my role as an investor. Yeah, the the Zen of a product, I, I find that quite interesting. So, look, we have to work towards uh, wrapping up because uh, I, I know um, we've taken up a bit of your time now. But um, I guess I guess the last pieces of the puzzle is is kind of uh, where can people find out more about your your latest book, uh, the Messy Middle, and uh, any kind of uh, parting words you'd like to finish off with. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, I um, the Messy Middle has has really been a five to seven year project for me. Uh, there are over a hundred insights in there that are all about optimizing and enduring through the Messy Middle of a bold entrepreneurial pursuit or creative journey. Um, I, I, I just encourage people to let them play in their heads a little bit, you know, roll around, um, challenge them, you know, in your mind just to start to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. But it's, um, I'm really excited to get it into folks' hands. And of course, the Messy Middle will be available October 2nd everywhere, and it's available for pre-order now. And I, and I you know, and I think as a as parting, uh, a parting words of wisdom, I mean, I just think that, I don't know. I, I, I really, I, I hope that people though do stick with it, you know, and whether it's one idea or an idea that you decide is a better idea, but I just have this routine realization with so many different teams I work with that when they just stick together long enough and they just keep kind of getting closer and closer to a problem they're trying to solve uh, for their customer, I think typically, you know, a labor of love has a way of working out, just not as you expect. And so I hope everyone tries to find that um, and, uh, and never gives up on the discipline of, uh, of becoming a better maker, you know, building that muscle memory through your own experiences and through insights that others share with you. Amazing. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time, Scott. You've uh, been very, very generous and uh, shared so much gold with our audience. Uh, I really, really appreciate the time you've taken and congratulations on all your success thus far. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.